This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, Mr. Next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We've got a great show ahead of us. So, Adi, good morning. How are you today? I'm good, although it was a uh, somewhat of a treacherous bike ride this morning. So, a lot has caught my eye in sports. It's what we do in the first half hour. And again, I'm hoping callers call in at one eight four four Wharton to join the show. And of course, you can always email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And actually, in the 830 hour audio, there's, we've gotten lots of Twitter and email questions. So we're going to be going through those as well, which is great for our fans of our show to do that as well. So I got a few things to get to before we get to. I mean, if, if it's Brad Lewin Weiner, people know we're going to be talking about MLB Hall of Fame. You know it. We know that. <laughs> but let's get to that in just a few minutes. Um, I, I want to start with the NBA, and I've got two things to talk about, and then we can. Uh, and none of them have to do with the Sixers yet, even though we're sitting oh, I'd here. Love and, to talk about. Well, the Sixers. we're going to get to the Sixers. All right. So I'm looking at the sheet here about who the favorite is in the NBA in the Eastern Conference, and I see the Celtics sitting up top with the Raptors. And the Celtics currently have a 9-8 and eight record. They're in 7th place, 6th or 7th place in the East. I know it's only 17 games, like a quarter of the season in. Could you tell our fans here, this is why I love having one-on-one time with you on the radio, because you can talk to our fans about updating and all kinds of statistical things. When should we start to concern ourselves if one were a Celtic fan? Of course, I hate the Celtics, but if one were a Celtic fan, they're 9-8, and eight, basically a 500 team. When does one start to Bayesianly update and say, maybe the prior of last year, where they made the Eastern Conference Finals, almost beat Cleveland on the way to the play, onto the way to the finals, maybe that's not this year's team. So how do you tell our fans, when do you start adjusting, let's say, a 55-win projection and the, and the NBA Finals to we're 9-8, and eight, and that's the reality of today? Well, every sport is different. Because the amount of information in a game is very different depending on the sport. So in baseball, you don't do very much movement. You can go 20 games into the season and you're still sticking with your original forecast or what we've been calling and what we do call in statistics the priors. There's a there's a way to do this mathematically that's uh, that it's, it's it's called padding or 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 sticking on wins and losses before the the season even begins and 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 that's your your prior and then you use that as a, as a basis for moving forward. Just to interject for one second, just so people know, there's a very for those really statistical people <laughs> and our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, when you have wins and losses, the classic model that people like to use is what's called a beta binomial model, and then the beta distribution, the prior, literally because of the way the math works, can literally be thought of as an additional set of wins and losses that you add on to the 9-8 and eight record, and then you get an updated it's, estimate. It's amazing it's how beautiful. Be- it's, it's the extra- math is beautiful. It's extraordinary how beautiful it is. And it does go back to, uh, to I think it's, it's uh, uh, Leibniz, or not Leibniz, um, Who's a, certainly in the 1800s. It might even be Galton. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes way, it goes, way back. It goes. It does go go, go very what, far back. So where do we go for the so Celtics? So basically, here? so the Celtics is interesting because uh, basketball is one of the sports where the information isn't very.
very very useful very early. Uh, you get a lot of information in a game. It's it's an eighty one game season, eighty two, eighty two game season. Yep. But it is the short, it is the longest season in sp- in professional sports. Well, other than baseball. Well, no, no. I mean that when I mean longest, longest, I mean it's the length. longest season yeah, in the yeah, sense yeah. it's way more information than you need to divide up the teams. And there's two reasons for that. One is that the basketball teams have the big, biggest diversity or, or variance in quality. So the worst teams and the best teams are extremely far apart. And you might say that football is similar, but but football is a very short season. So basketball is this 82-game season with enormous distance between the top teams and the bottom teams. And generally, 20 games, or we're only 15, 16 games in, yeah. is actually quite a bit. And so if I had to use my... I, I don't know what the padding is in basketball. We should right. try to do some research. Um, in baseball, it's about 30 games worth of, worth of padding, which means it's a lot. You need about 30 to 50 games before you over overcome your priors. In, in basketball, it's probably quite a few, quite a lot, quite a few, a bit fewer number of, of games. And I would guess we should be updating the, the Celtics. So you would update the Celtics right now, given they're slightly above 500. If I told you, you that they might end up being a 600 team for the season or end up 49 wins as opposed to the 54, 55 at the beginning of the season, or another way to do it, this is the way we've always done this math. If they were going to be a two-thirds, win two-thirds of their games, they should be 12 and 6 right now. They're three games behind that pace. So one way to believe it is, well, they're going to be the real Celtics for the rest of the game, so you subtract three. Another way to frame it is they're not going to be the two-win, one-loss Celtics, and so you subtract. But the bare minimum, you and I would agree, you have to at least subtract three expected course, wins. Minimum. Minimum, minimum. minimum. Are, games lost can never be unlost is, is a way to describe that. Great. But, I like that theory that they can't be. <laughs> they can't be unlost. But I think that we really should be updating. And I'm not, a, you know, I haven't dissected the intricacies of the Celtics roster. Have they, um, have any, is anybody injured who might be coming back? No, that, that can make that, a big difference. Problem. They're, they don't yeah. have any injuries, and they're not. And this is the thing: of all the teams in the NBA, let me say the good news about the Celtics: their defense is one of the top three in the league. That's great. The bad news is we're in an, uh, the most offensive—I don't mean yeah. offensive—offensive of NBA right now, and they're actually a team that isn't up in scoring. One of the few teams right. in the NBA that isn't scoring one fifteen a game. But I, I'm going to change the subject slightly. I'd like to talk about the Lakers' start, which I think they began very poorly. They were zero and three, and they're now. Nine and seven. Nine and seven. I think, but I think they were worse. I mean, they did win a game. They they were one and four, but or one and five. But they did lose a whole bunch out of their first seven games. Yes, they did. And and now they've won. I think if you subtract it, now that's cheating. We shouldn't be doing that. That's that's hindsight. Right. Uh, that's wishful thinking. But what do we th- what do we make of the Lakers? I mean, this obviously is a team with LeBron, yeah, but fair. he's an aging LeBron. I mean, we're we expecting him to slow down. It's amazing though how how just yeah. for for a more casual fan, you see this guy LeBron leave the leave leave Cleveland, and they're at the bottom. I mean, right. Absurdly bad. Absurdly bad. Ab- absurdly bad. And now the Lakers, which were not a good team last year, yeah, they were are, mediocre. Are, are, are immediately competitive, and the West doesn't look dominant anymore. Right. What do we have to make of the Warriors? Well, it, so let me. I'll talk Let's about the Lakers, and then I'll there. get to the Warriors yeah. quickly. So um, LeBron's the greatest player on the planet. And he's still the greatest player on the planet. And um, we'll get to the Warriors. And it relates to the Warriors. LeBron makes everyone around him greater. And so um, it's not just that he scores 27, 28 a game and has 8 to 10 assists every game and 8 to 10 rebounds every game. It's not about that. LeBron is a passer first. He's always been. He would rather have a great assist than score. Now, what does that mean? It means other guys in the team know if they're open, LeBron is going to get you the ball. And he also must attract defenders. I mean, so that it's uh, it's, it's, his team must be open. If he doesn't, he does what happens in the last game. The aging LeBron only dropped 51 against Miami. And let me tell you, I was watching the game. 
thank you for the NBA League Pass, he could have dropped 71 if he had wanted to. He was barely breaking a sweat. So what you're, so if I just to summarize this, if Braun gets heavily guarded, which seems a natural thing to want to do, he passes, he's such a brilliant passer, his teammates score much more. If you don't defend him, then he'll, just drop, he'll, just, he'll, just, drop, he'll just drop 50 like on you. He'll just drop 50 on you. That's his. His basketball IQ is so high. If you single team him, you know, he's 6'9", 270. You can't cover him. If you double team him, he'll find the open man. Now, let's contrast that with the Warriors. So the Warriors are actually, you know, for them, they're slumping. I think they're 12-6 and six or somewhere in that range. But here's the thing. Steph Curry's been injured, so that's the big well, wild right, card. And by the way, just to show you, this is why I've I've never been a huge Durant fan forever. They have a ma- I, I couldn't find it. I was looking this morning. They have a massively losing record without Steph Curry. Like when Durant is number one, like he's the guy, and there's no one one A him and Curry. I'm going to say something like the Warriors are like ten and seventeen. They're a, not a good team. In other words, so you well, still have checking. you still have Matt can give me the exact stat with Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson. Draymond Green, all the other players, but no Steph Curry. They're a losing team. Losing team. I don't mean that, well, you know, no, they're only so, a 550, so is, 600 so, team. They're a losing record right, so team. Let's, let's see. Is this is this Steph Curry doing what LeBron does just in a different way? Yes. Because Steph Curry, you just watch the Warriors. He makes amazing amount of space. That's he can take it. shots from anywhere, and you give everyone that space, and everybody becomes better. Yeah, also, you know, I, I hate to put it this way. This is just the way it is. You agree, offensively, Steph Curry... And Kevin Durant are unstoppable. They're oh, unstoppable yeah. offensively. Well, you take Steph Curry off the court, and now the best defender is on Kevin Durant. And maybe even the second best defender is covering Kevin Durant. Because, you know, you're not worried about Draymond Green scoring. You're not worried about Iguodala or whoever else they bring in Livingston, these guys. They're not worried about them. Yeah, having two great scores is much greater than one great score. Yeah. It's just much, much greater. So I'm I'm downgrading the Warriors a little bit, but, but it's Steph meaningless. Curry will be back. He'll, his, be back. Uh, he'll be back. Yeah, a couple so, games. It's so, meaningless. So it's, it's nothing. So now let's turn our attention to our local favorite, Sixers. Uh, it says here, actually, I, I think Matt's – okay. So the number Matt's given me is probably the more localized number, which is in the three years that Durant and Curry have played together. Thank, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, putting stuff up on the screen. They're 21-20 and 20 without Curry, but with Durant. So they're a 500, 500 team. They're a 500 team. So that's, you know, that's pretty informative. I, I, I was looking at the entire Warriors time when Curry hasn't played, which includes some years without Durant. Without Durant and they're, they're well, well below 500. Um, back to the Sixers trade. Just for the people that know, the Sixers traded um, two of their starters, Dario Saric and Robert Covington, for essentially two of them for Jimmy Butler. Couple concerns I have, and I know you have some analysis you're going to talk well, to us I have about. So, I have these wonderful. Shock I'm just going charts. to say I'm going to say just one stat to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School here on Wharton Moneyball, and I'm here with my colleague and friend, uh, Professor Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. If you want to join the conversation at the moment, we're talking NBA, but we'll be talking. Don't worry, we'll be talking MLB. We'll be talking college football, pro football. You can join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Before you get into the shot analysis, I'm just going to give you one stat, which I think I said last week, but I'll say it again just for our listeners. Can you tell me which starting five, whether you use plus minus, whether you use player uh, efficiency, any advanced stat, which team had the best starting five in the NBA last season? Oh, oh, starting five, starting, just starting five. five, starting five. 
I, I, I'm not sure, but I think it's got to be. It's not the Warriors because otherwise you wouldn't ask. Correct. So I would, I would maybe venture either the Celtics or the Sixers. It's the Philadelphia 76ers. 76ers. So you've now traded. Just to be clear, Covington and Sarge were two of the starters on the team, and so what you did was you broke up the best starting five by every advanced metric in the NBA, and the here's the good news. So Ben Simmons, our point guard, is a wonderful player. I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I don't mean against defenders. I would play him in a game of horse right now from 15 feet out. Like I'm pretty sure I could defeat him in a shooting drill from 15 feet out. He doesn't. He can't shoot the ball well. He can't shoot the ball well at all. Those are bold words. He is a professional basketball player, but I do take your point. I said unguarded. <laughs> oh, I unguarded. said unguarded. I, I, I didn't mean with actual humans out on the court. <laughs> no, I know that. But you're saying that both of you unguarded, or he's, un- he's both guarded? unguarded. Both, he's guarded. Both unguarded. Both unguarded. Let's let Matt, Matt Dats is going to tell me. He's, Matt Dats is going to start putting up a betting line. Bradlow versus Simmons from Simmons, 15 feet out. I, I take I take Bradlow if Simmons is guarded. <laughs> but I'm well, not sure e- I would either take, way. I would take My Bradlow point unguarded. Is, Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons can't shoot the ball. And so the question is, what do we do when we have, you know, we've gotten rid of Sarge and Covington. We're massive three-point shooters. Big spacers on the court. And now all of a sudden you bring in Jimmy Butler. And by the way, I'm sure your stats are going to talk about this too. Jimmy Butler is one of the best two-point shooters in the NBA. But... Adi, what's our theorem? It's, Isn't three much bigger than two? Okay, so that's that's it's actually the most remarkable theorem in all of them. Well, How much the more is three than two? It's fifty percent more. Oh, wow, it's one of my favorite lines. As, as those who are longtime listeners of Moneyball know, so three is is one point more than two. That sounds like like hardly relevant, but it's fifty percent more. And it it rarely is, is the characterization more obvious than when you talk about the replacement of Butler for the three point shooters Covington and Sarik. These guys, I mean, they, they these guys almost exclusively made their mark from the edges and were they extraordinary at the edges uh, they were very good very good uh, and the two, com- two together were very good in particular in certain spots and uh so covington was very very good from the corner um and uh and Sarich for not not from the corner but from from the from the outside yeah he's not at the center yeah. but um particularly from the right side and but and but you look at it and and butler is great mid-range shooter I mean, crazy mid-range shooter. And if you think about it, he's extraordinary. I mean, he averages nearly 55%. He's an extraordinary mid-range from, shooter. From the mid-range, which is about three or four feet in from the three-point line and still outside. Um, uh, and and you, you do the, the basic math. And Covington and Sarek average around 0. 0.4 or 40% from the three throw. What is 40%? From the three-point line. From the three-point yeah. line. 4, 0.4 times three is 1.2. And what is 0.53, 0.55 times 2? It's about 1.06, 1.1. You do the math. It's a big difference. And that's At, not multiply so Multiply that by the number of possessions in a game and the number of shot attempts they get. Mm-hmm. It's not great. It's, it's not clear now. Now Butler does is is definitely stronger, you know, at the basket and 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 I think maybe defensively he probably adds more than yes and no. So he is. This, this is also the thing. Let me just trans. I'm not going to stay. We're going to stay with Butler, but I'm going to transition to a related topic. So he is a five time defensive player, like all time, you know, league defensive player. Robert Covington's also an excellent defensive player, but this is the question people have asked. So we're getting the 30-year-old Jimmy Butler. That's right. So advanced statistics have looked 
He's actually slowing down. Now, I don't mean like the eyeball test. I mean the sprint speed he's that they actually measure. Yeah. Slowing he's actually down. slowing down. Yeah. And so you mentioned the older LeBron. This is what's amazing about LeBron. Actually, they've measured it. LeBron is actually not slowing down. And given the guy's been playing, this is what, a 17th NBA right. season, he's actually not slowing down. Jimmy Butler's in his, whatever, 10th NBA season, 9th, he is slowing down. So the question is, are we going to get Butler? Which Butler are we going to get? I bet Butler was slightly faster, though, to begin with, than LeBron, I would guess. Is that not, I don't not know. Clear? It's I, hard I, to I, say. Be, I, I mean, LeBron's I, would, so big, it's hard, it, to, imagine it's hard to imagine moving someone that large that quickly. It, it could very well be. And the other thing, thanks to Matt as well for pointing out, um, Jimmy Butler, has. we have no contract. Right. This is this year. I mean, I'm not saying he he says he wants to sign a long term deal. No, Sixers can decide if they want to do that. But if based on his age curve, but do we actually want to? That's another. Question. Who knows? But it's very it's very interesting. And the basic math does not predict all that well for the Sixers. So let's let's keep our eye on them as we go. I forward. think so. Well, this is Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we're here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host and friend Adi Weiner. Again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So let's start moving. We're going to have plenty of time for NFL and college football today. Um, this is the time of year where ballots start to be. They do. They, ballots start to come out for the Hall of Fame. And, and as you, as our listeners, longtime listeners know, this is one of our favorite topics. Both Eric and I love this. Yeah. Now let's. So as everyone knows, I'm just going to remind everyone the Bradlow uh, pantheon of the Hall of Fame because Adi and I will be getting into that in just a minute. I view it as there's three basic tiers of the Hall of Fame. There's the all all time greats who would be I consider like the top. Five percent of the Hall of Famers. Like, for example, I watch the Hall of Fame ceremony every year, where they announce all the former Hall of Famers. There like, isn't you know, usually one in that group. Well, there is. Like, for example, last season, uh, l- no, before? they came to the ceremony. No, they came to the oh, ceremony. No, 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 no. no. Once ta- it inducted, no, no, no usually no, not. No, right. yeah. no. I'm talking about that came to the ceremony oh. itself. I'm talking oh. about you know when Hank Aaron's there. I think we have to. Well, admit, Willie Mays is still alive. Yeah, <laughs> although he hasn't come to as many yeah. ceremonies lately. We could debate whether Sandy Koufax is a first. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a first Pantheon tier Hall of Famer. We could argue maybe Ken Griffey. You could argue maybe Griffey Jr. Not quite the longevity. Not I think, quite to, the longevity. Earn that, but. So let's just eliminate a couple things to start. So the first person in his first ballot this year, our guy Mariano Rivera. So just give is, me your is assessment. He a top? Now it's interesting because there's going to be an argument over this, and the reason why they'll argue it is war. The war statistic, which is is becoming increasingly dominant today, is for Rivera is the highest for a reliever. But it's fifty four. I fifty four fifty five. I think it's sixty, depending on your way of calculating. Okay. But whatever it is, it's not Babe Ruth. And Babe Ruth is one sixty. And just to put it in comparison, Trout in his seventh year or sixth year is already at nearly sixty. And so what you're basically saying, what is Mariano contributed? It's not a huge number in actual value. On the other hand, you have to judge someone in the role that they were in. And there is some limitation to war because, as, as we talked about last week, it really summarizes what you've contributed to your team. But a championship team needs much more, uh, a much more contribution that can be summarized by war. And what, what Rivera did for the Yankees was something that is, is I don't think, as easily measured as a, as a war statistic would do that. And, of course... His real crowning tri- triumph is not even measured by war. He had essentially two season, two seasons worth of innings, 170 innings in the postseason. A typical reliever is about half that in a given in yep. a given year. So two seasons worth of performance in the postseason, and his ERA in the postseason was point seven oh. 
point seven. And let's remember, these are against the best these teams are the and best, best teams. teams. I know that that statistic itself is just incredible. It just to blows me. your mind. And of course, you and I are still suffering from that Arizona two thousand one. But yeah. he didn't. He didn't really pitch badly in that. That was. I, I, I want to point mean, out one thing. I can't believe we're, here, honestly, we're an, it, it I know, we're analytics and sati- <laughs> analytics and statistics and business show. I just want to say one thing about that game again. As I was driving in, I knew you were going to bring up 2001, Uh and it's painful for me to even to think about it, but I want to say one thing about it. It reminds me of 1986 and Bill Buckner, just for a moment. Let me say why. You remember this. When the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs and the Mets won the the game, first of all, there was still a game seven. Let's ignore that for a second. Bob Stanley had thrown a wild pitch to tie the game. When the ball went through Buckner's legs, the game was tied. There was an error yes. in that 2001 ninth inning. If that doesn't happen, we may never, never be talking about this. So I just want to say, it wasn't like the the rest of the Yankees were guiltless in right, that right. 2001. That, okay, so it's interesting because it does remind me of, of, of something else to uh, to segue to. But let's just talk but about we Rivera. we got to keep going. Hall well, yeah, of Fame. Rivera, so Rivera, yeah. so if you take his, his all-time best closer, plus his, his performance in the postseason, I would actually, he's certainly a mid-tier Hall of Famer, and no. I was going to go in that first. No, but I would, I would, put, I would, and I'm not just saying year. that as a Yankee homer. Were you the? Well, let me ask you a different question. I, I do agree. No, no, ask you a different question. Is Johnny Bench a first tier Hall of Famer? Yes. What? Well, why? Because he was the best at his, his best position. At his position. Well, then Rivera's a first tier Hall of Famer. And by the way, in my view, it's not even close. He was the best reliever in the history of baseball. And it's not close, and it's not close in the regular season. It's not close in the postseason, and you know whether you want to add on his close five rings as whatever. I mean, so first war tier. be damned, war be, war damned be damned in this case. Okay, so let's go on to the next. All right, so now next possibility. Who, well, right. there's a bunch. Well, so can we uh, want to talk about we, the new ones? Let's, well, no, no. Let's get to them in a second. Do we want to talk at all? I mean, we're not going to get into a discussion of perform enhancing drugs, but do we even want to discuss Bonds? No, Sosa. They're not going in. Manny. This year. Manny and Sosa are not going in ever. Um, Bonds and, and Clemens have a very strong shot in their final year of eligibility. Now, remember, let's also remember, remind our fans, it's been cut down to 10 years That's now. That's right. It and used to be now, 15. I think this is their eighth year coming up. At least. Maybe Matt can check and, on that, uh, but it's so somewhere still, near that. This is not the end, for sure, for either of them, and I predict that they will go in in their final year. That'll be very interesting to see. That'll be very interesting They're to still see. not close. They're still in the high 50s, and you need to be at 75%. I think the one who's almost a lock for this year is Edgar, Edgar Martinez, who just missed. You know, so I looked at Edgar Martinez, okay? Now, war, I understand the challenge. The guy didn't play the field. And they Do you know that. what his career war is? It's probably around 60, I would guess. It's 68. Yeah. But here's the number. Which num- for an for a everyday player is not enormous. And, right, and here's the numbers that bother me about him. 309 home runs, 1,261 RBIs. When is that in the Hall of Fame? 300? I mean, everyone was like, he was a great, great hitter. I mean, yeah, but how, how is he in the Hall of Fame? It's an interesting question. I mean, and uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, he's he's definitely on the bubble, but I do think he's going to go in just based on histor- historical numbers. And it is numbers. his last year, by and, the way. It yes, is his last he, year. He missed. He was, he was actually interesting because... 70.3% or something. 70.3%. There were five over the mark. With the public ballots, which always okay, makes can an you interesting explain statistical question. Every year, we, we don't cover this every week on Morton Moneyball, and of course, some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Cade mm-hmm. Massey, and Shane Jensen are every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed throughout the week, thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dan- Danielle Bruno. You can find us all over the place, iTunes, SoundCloud, all kinds of places. Um, but Adi, remind us about 
how the ballot works and remind us about what you're saying, the public ballot and how that works as well. Well, so what? What there's uh, on, only baseball writers of America or some association are eligible to actually vote. And there's almost about, I think there's about 450 eligible voters. They get a, a scorecard and they're allowed to only select a certain number. They don't even have to select, I think it's 10. It's at most 10. And, at, at most, at most 10. they don't have to do that many. And then you just see who how many ballots each individual player gets. But there's most of the, it's, it's about two thirds, maybe not quite two thirds of the voters release their ballots publicly before the the Hall of Fame uh, is announced, so it's within a week or so, and that makes us. And you actually, you can track them. There's a there's a there's a, a, a guy on the web who tracks Rob Rob Thibodeau, I think his name is. He actually tracks the Hall of Fame votes going towards the end, and you can see how the the ballots are progressing. And last year, there were five players over seventy five percent. After the close of the public ballots, which is most of the ballots, and that the question began, how many are going to make it? And although all five were above it, a five Hall of Fame class is, is, un, is, is uh, not. Uh, I think it's happened once or maybe never. Yeah. Um, and so four, yes, and this was a good class, but five unusual. And of course, it played out that one had to lose, and it was Edgar. So this year's class, I think, Very is, weak. is a weaker class. Very weak. So Rivera's, in, in my view, is the only. Slam dunk. Only lock. Edgar, Edgar looks like he's strong candidate because he's in his final year. It's his, uh, he's been getting closer every year, and, and I would highly predict him. The real question going forward is who else is going to be on that list? All right, well, and we have new and we have old. Well, and let's so, go to one old, and then let's go to some new. I'll go to the old, and then I'll let okay, you go to the new. Thank you. Mike <laughs> Messina. Mike Messina's old, yes. So let me just say, he had a war of 83. Not bad. 270 wins. And 153 losses. 270. And in the height of the Saturday And 153. Era. That's an amazing winning percentage. Now, the knock on him is his ERA is Jack Morris-like. Yeah. 3.68 ERA. He's lower than Jack Morris. But Jack Morris was the high threes. He's 3.68. Yep. Mike Messina, you know how many times he won 20 games? Once. Once. His, his final, final career. Season. Yes. I know. His final know season. <laughs> his final season. And so that's the knock on him. I think he's a third, clearly third tier. He's a Hall of Fame pitcher. I do agree. I think he's almost the anti-Kofax. Agreed. Because he he, he is to longevity and 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 performance no, 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 in no. the in the Don year. Sutton. Don Sutton is the right. anti-Kofax. Well, you know, so three hundred and twenty-nine. Kofax wins. is pitching in an era of very low ERA, and and Messino is pitching in, a, in an era of very high ERA. Kofax was extremely dominant for five years. He was the best pitcher. Well, Put together five ungodly seasons. Before we in a get row. back to specific players, so can you talk to our listeners here on Morton Moneyball about? So how do you compare across eras? Do you just simply standardize, which is, let's take Koufax's ERA, subtract the average in the league he pitched, divide by the standard deviation, we get like a Z-score. Yeah. Is that the simplest way to do it? And if, if there's a more complicated way without giving it necessarily, is that really bad? Can we just do that? Can we just say how many standard deviations above and below the average were you? Do that for a bunch of years and then compare Koufax and Sutton, Musina. Is that an unreasonable that's, thing to that's do? That's the most reasonable thing I can think of, um, and one of the reasons why it's so simple. And it basically gets the job done. Can you be fancier? Probably. I mean, obviously, you'd probably want to look at the full distribution of, of ERAs and talent and make an assessment of that. But that's generally how it's done. And by the way, the war statistic does that. It does integrate your league averages into your calculations. Well, we're going to have more time later to talk about individual players. But in the last couple of minutes before our, our 830 break, I want to ask you a question. In the world of advanced metrics, does win-loss even matter anymore? 
I mean, thanks to Zach Drapkin, by the way, who gave us a lot of information. It was one of the questions that he gave us to help prep us for the show. But does win-loss matter? Like, well, I, you know we saw me, DeGrom, I'm, I'm so excited about... DeGrom wins the, wins the Cy Young, 29 out of 30 votes. I understand that. That might be for an... 10 and 9. I understand, <laughs> I, I understand that. But I'm saying, for the Hall of Fame... For the Hall of Fame. Does, does win-loss matter? I think it does. I mean, because the idea behind, behind win-loss is in a given season, there's too much variance in your team's talent to really say something. But win-loss is a great summary statistic over a career because it, it really integrates innings pitched as well. And that's something that has to matter. I mean, you can't... One of the things that we notice about the pitchers today is it's very rare that they go six or seven innings in a game. That's considered a, right. a, a, a strong start to pitch six, six and a half, seven innings. And the starters of yesteryear pitched much longer, and which means that they were they, their fate was in their own hands. They controlled their win loss. So going back and looking historically at the players who are evaluating today, I think win loss really matters. Which is why I'm totally behind uh, Messina, and I'm actually behind someone who's eligible this year. You haven't mentioned right, yet go ahead. another Yankee, Andy Pettit has come up, and I'm in favor of Andy Pettit. Maybe not for five ten. He's certainly the last year of the Hall of Fame. I mean, really the bottom of the last year. And maybe I am using my Yankee bias, but I think he's he's uh, in in Messina's. Mold, um, but also he has that remarkable postseason record, which is something that I think needs to get evaluated in his, in his favor. But we skipped. I mean, we should just close this. We have to talk about Halliday. I was going. Um, that's what I was going to. By the way, three point three eight ERA, very good. Two hundred and three wins, one hundred and five losses. I'm going to say that again. Two hundred and three wins, one hundred and five losses. Two Cy Youngs. He was the best pitcher in baseball. He was. He meets my criterion of it, was there a five to seven year stretch where Roy Halladay was right. the best pitcher in baseball. He was. But among best pitchers in baseball, he was. He's not. He's not remarkable. So he's not he, Koufax. And no. he had a short season. He had a short career. Short career. So the real issue is is Pettit and Halladay really are almost two sides of the, of the story. You get uh, Pettit, Messina are long term, high longevity. Pitchers who accumulated over 250 wins, and Halliday is a sort of a mid-length career. He didn't have a long career. His innings are much shorter. Has far fewer wins, which, as I said, is I think a much more sensible metric for Cy Young. And maybe we should throw that out to the people on Twitter to to discuss because everyone is just ragging on wins, win loss record. And in an individual season, I think that's a very kind of a decent thing to sort of to sort of throw away. It adds, but it hardly is is all that relevant. But I think over career wins. And all right. So let's matter. in our last thirty seconds before we take our break here. So. Let's the following. We'll do an over-under. Even though we're going to do it later in the show, we'll do one right now. Mike Messina, Andy Pettit, Roy Halladay. Over-under two and a half make the Hall of Fame. Eventually in their eventually, career. Well, eventually. Well, that's a 10-year bet. I'd love to be around to settle it. Eventually. Um, Why won't you be around to no, settle well, it? Yeah, I'd like Morton Moneyball to be around to settle Morton it. Morton Money, so, Moneyball's going to be around to settle it. Um, so, so Messina... Pettit and Halliday. That's it. Okay, I'm going to go. Halliday, I think, is almost a lock, and I think Messina eventually was is also. He's probably ninety percent. So, really, the question you're asking me is Pettit going to make it? Oh, wow. remember though the admission of PD use. Yeah, but I think he's. I think he. I think he's managed to escape. All that. right, you got to go over on it. Come on, we're we're you know it's a two hour show here, not two years. Give us your answer. I'm, un- unfortunately, my statistics head is saying under. My Yankee head is saying over. But I'm going to go with my statistics head. Okay, and I'm going to go under as well. But yeah. because of I'm actually not as convinced you are that Halliday is going in. But either way, that's been the first half hour of, uh, here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, please join us again for the last three quarters after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, uh, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, some combination of myself, 
Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey are every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And, of course, if you want to join the conversation, and what better time to give back to your favorite show, Wharton Moneyball, than to call in right here the day before Thanksgiving. And you can do so. It's very simple. Just call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our producer, Matt Datz, is waiting for your call. And you can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I've been actually tweeting a lot under our handle, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. So, Adi, before we – let's finish up our conversation about baseball in the Hall of Fame. So who else has caught your eye as someone that might be under consideration for the Hall of Fame based on the ballot this year? This year, I think those are the ones that I think we've, we've nailed. Kurt okay, You're right. Kurt Schilling, I actually think Kurt Schilling is a better candidate for the Hall than even Messina. Um, and he seems to never quite get the votes. There's something against Kurt Schilling. I mean, Kurt well, Schilling— Well, do you follow politics at all? I'm not sure that, that, what that has to do with his Hall of Fame oh, career. Oh, <laughs> I, I, you know, wake, wake up to the real world, uh, <laughs> Professor Weiner. I'm saying he just has... Outs- Is he pissing off the writers? Is that why? He, he's pissing off a lot of people. Okay, well, that's an interesting question. Let's just imagine that he is, without getting into the discussion. Does that make a difference? I know it does only in the sense of into people's emotions get in the way of how they, uh, how they I, react. I, I, so we're a business show, too. So I'll just bring up a concept we think about in marketing all the time, which is segmentation. So think of there being even, I'm making this up, suppose uh, Kurt Schilling's true, if everyone voted according to his pure baseball record, let's imagine he's a 75 to 80 percent guy. I think you agree with that. Yeah. He's not, he's no higher. Let's, he's wait. no higher, but he has, again, he has that, he has that, that success in the World Series in the playoffs, which no, no, I no. think is a, is okay. a wild no, no, card no, I'm that giving matters. him that. But, yeah. So I'm giving him that. But you agree, even under the best case scenario, he's a 75 to 80 percent guy. So now, let's imagine there's two populations of letter writers, 80 to 85 percent, the large majority, the super majority, that don't care about his views outside of baseball. And then the 10 to 15 percent that he's pissed off, they're going to put a spike vote at zero. So now he needs to get 90 percent plus of right. 80 to 85 yeah. percent. Well, the math starts working against you real bad, When, he, when you're on the border fast. like that, it doesn't work. No, that's work what yet. I'm saying. Yeah. He's a borderline Hall of Famer with possibly a spike at zero of people that won't vote at him for not his on-field right. accomplishments, then this is the only math. We like doing math. You then, The minute your population is 80% of the voters, potentially, now you need 95% of 80%. Of all those. Now, I'm gonna, I, I think that's probably an overestimate. I think, I think most writers generally are, are uh, voting on their... On what happened on the field. Now, the the, the PD is a different matter because that, of course, affects what you what your performance on the, on the field. And so, it's not really necessarily about integrity. It's more about well, are, w- did we really observe you as opposed to you augmented? Then, do by, we want to have a conver- enhanced drugs? Do we then want to have a conversation about whether Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame? Do we want well, to have we, that we, every we, year? Well, I mean, no. So, so that's a good that's a good question. And, and, and if Shane were sitting here, he'd be saying, he'd be like, "Come on!" But and the, and the question about Hall of Fame is is that he was banished from baseball and, and not from the Hall of Fame. But he was not banished from the Hall of Fame because it's a separate institution, and the Hall of Fame sort of unilaterally decided to to honor that banishment and not even put him on the ballot. And that makes it makes a right it is does it does uh, open the question uh, for us to think about. And, and maybe there is a good case to say that Pete Rowe does he. He does clearly belong in the Hall of Fame, and he's a first, probably a first-tier Hall of Famer as well, without a question. Without question. So let's actually let's change it slightly. Uh, we heard a retirement. Uh, uh, Beltre retired, 
And Beltre, many people are saying, is going to be not only a first ballot Hall of Famer, but possibly unanimous ballot. I think that's crazy, but he's a he's he really is a remarkable player. Twenty one years, um, and uh, what's so remarkable about him that you saw? Like what in his statistics, okay. advanced stat, anything that's so remarkable? He really about has Beltre? it all. Um, I mean, one of the things that he was remarkable about is he's an incredible fielder. And at a position that it really matters, and he put out power numbers that are insane. So, you know, he's a 500 home run hitter. Did he reach 500 home runs? 477. Yeah, close close to 500. Close to nearly 500. 500. Uh, Enormous numbers of hits, over 3,000 hits. So he's got the 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 traditional two the traditional numbers. I'll give you a question right now. Uh, This is who I put him comparable to. I think he's a Hall of Famer. He's nowhere near a first ballot. Who do you think had a better? You don't think so? No. No, first, not first ballot. Uh, I'm sorry, first tier. First tier. You do Let not me think give he's you, first I'll tier. Give you no, a, I don't think I'll he's first tier. I'll give you a comparable player, and you tell me who you think had a better career. And Matt will put it up on my screen. Very comparable numbers. Chipper Jones. Who had who had a better career, Beltre or Jones? I'm going to put them in the same pantheon. I bet if you look at their roughly their home runs, RBIs, batting average, OPS, they're extremely I think, comparable. I think that uh, Beltre is by far the better defender. And if you if you want to kind of go with the statistical flow that has been you know bellowing up over the last couple of years, there's been an increasing understanding that defense is more important than we've historically evaluated, and we should take it into consideration. And if you think about someone like Beltre, who is such a remarkable defender, is he Brooks Robinson? Some would say yes in that league. Well, it's interesting. Of course, Chipper played third as well. Mm-hmm. So I, all I'm but saying is nothing like that. That level of, okay, of artistry. Way, we can agree he's a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. I, I, there's no way. So let's argue. Will he go in? By the way, five assuming, years when assuming, he's eligible, so will let me he go just give you the round? numbers. Let me just give you the two numbers that Matt has put up on my screen. So for career, Beltre is a 286 average hitter with a 339 on base percentage. Chipper Jones was a 303 batting average with a 401 on base percentage. So I'm going to make the claim that Chipper Jones was a better, better hitter. hitter. Was yeah. a better well, hitter. how many home runs did he have over his career? Uh, Chipper, 468 mm-hmm. versus 477. That's why their numbers keep sticking in my right. mind together that very, very similar in terms of offensive. Obviously, Chipper was just a better... Who's a better hitter. Better hitter. But either way... Um, so I, I agree with you. That's the list that I've looked at, and that's everybody that I've seen. Obviously, we'll find out. I think we know Rivera's going into the Hall of Fame. I think you and I agree. Edgar, matter of fact... I think this is a two-person class. Yeah, what's interesting about it is it could be a one-person class, which is also very rare. I think it helps Edgar a lot that this is a weak year. And, and I think it helps there's no other offense. It helps Messina, and there's no other... Like if Edgar's the only other person, it's, it's almost like Rivera's Edgar's in his going own separate class. Because he's in his final no, year. No, but I mean Edgar. Yeah. But it's no, Rivera's. It's separate, not just yeah. in a separate class. He's a reliever. He's a pitcher. We're not saying, wow, is Edgar Martinez better than you know? Is he better than Sosa? We're not comparing him to other hitters. He's the only offensive player. He's the only primary hitter that potentially will go in this year. You agree with that? I, absolutely. So that that's a big difference. So I wanted to just run by you an analysis that I was pouring over in preparation for today. So we, okay. we, did, we didn't manage to dissect all the, the Most Valuable Player and Cy Young Awards for baseball at the end of the season. And there were no real surprises um, in terms of who... I mean, Betts won in the American League. Um, and Yelich? Uh, Yelich won with the Brewers. I think these were clearly the, the most obvious candidates and um, for, the, for the MVP. The Cy Young was DeGrom. They were people saying, how could you have a 10-9 and nine pitcher win the, the Cy Young? He won all but one vote. Um, Blake Snell. B- Blake's, but the Blake Snell, Justin Verlander 
debate debate yep. is actually an interesting one, and not because of raw numbers in the classical sense, because Snell had a far lower ERA, but because of the analysis that the contemporary statistical baseball statistical community is doing, which is to not just not look at ERA, but they I don't know if you've seen these numbers. You see the X in front, so that they have this thing called WOBA now, where WOBA is basically a weighted on base percentage, uh, and you can scale these things. So they're really, they're, that's just a a um, a, uh, a measure. It's kind of like ERA for a pitcher. It's a standard based on standard statistics, but but weighting weighting all the different batting outcomes into one. But they now put X's in front of them. So I think maybe our listenership may not know what these X's yeah. are. So you see X WOBA X, and and th- that means expected. That's what the X stands for. Obviously, expected starts with an E, but it's much better to use the X in front. And so what is, where does this come from? And it's a proprietary number. So it comes from MLB's statistical analysis of the velocity and trajectory and, and baseball angle data. They have the full um, trajectory of a baseball. And they use that. So wait that- a second. Just to be clear here, because I know what you're going to tell us. I, let me make a forecast. And this mm-hmm. is remarkable what you're saying. So Blake Snell throws a pitch. They can tell the angle of the ball coming to the plate, the speed, the spin, whatever it is. No, that's not true. They can do all that, but the X-Wobe has to do with coming off the bat. Oh, but no, no, no. I thought you were, okay. So it's not what I was thinking it was, which is, based on what the pitch is, what's the expected? You're saying, given where the ball came off. That is the holy grail. (laughs) Okay, I was hoping for the holy grail. The holy grail is not it. Well, actually, they're pretty good at figuring out how, how, what, you know, if you... They're pretty good at figuring out where you throw it, at what, with what bend, with what angle, with what, what break, with what velocity, and what that translates out, out to an expected, expected value. They're pretty good with that, but not nearly as good as taking the trajectory of the ball, the full trajectory of the ball and its velocity, and figuring out what the, what the expected value of all the four batting outcomes are. I see. And of and course, so, but they're attributing that to a pitch or two? Can they attribute that to the pitcher? In other words, well, they don't attribute it. Basically, they look at the pitcher. In other words, they take they try to take away the randomness, randomness. of no. the park of of where the fielders are standing and just give a of how hard did they hit you, as opposed to where did it actually fall in where and take get rid of the ordering of the baseball players because that matters a lot. I mean, one of the classic things to think about if you if you do uh, um, uh, out out home run walk 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 out that's one run, but out, out, walk, 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 home run is four. Same outcomes, completely different t- different ERA or earned run. So you want to get rid of some of those randomness things. So the X in front of that is essentially just based on the trajectory and the, and the velocity of the ball off the bat. And what's interesting about it well, yeah, is tell us how- Verlander smokes Snell. Hmm. He's much better than Snell is. And in particular, you can almost see why. Uh, Snell has particularly, got particularly lucky with runners in scoring position and with runners on base. And, in, and as a result, his ERA is much lower than Verlander's. Now, let me ask you a question. Just to give us an order of magnitude here as well, um, how much since baseball has, when it comes to ERA, I would imagine there could be three or four instances. Just give our listeners a sense of magnitude here. When you say lucky, couldn't there be three or four occasions during a season that change somebody's ERA from like a 1.8 to like a 2.2? Absolutely. So could you just talk about ideas here? Because again, yeah. it's not when you say lucky, it could be he got lucky just three or four times. It's very and few number of times. So the data is pretty straightforward. So the X, X-WOBA comparisons. So you can look, you can break it up to overall bases empty, runners on, and runners in scoring position. And the X-WOBA for Verlander is better than Snell in every situation. 
situation, just across the board. So in every situation, you mean every... Overall, bases empty, runners on, runners in scoring position. But it's particularly... um, But but if you go back to to the regular WOBA, then Snell is better in across across all the situations, and he's particularly better. I mean, the, the, the difference is the best, is, is, is uh, biggest with runners in scoring position. And, and as you point out, it doesn't take very many hits Correct. with runners in scoring position to inflate that ERA. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. They don't pitch just... that many innings anymore. They're not 300 innings pitchers. They're pitching 200. So it, all it takes is a, is a couple of bad outings or bad, bad outcomes with runners in scoring position, and bam, your ERA could be inflated by not, a, not an insignificant amount. Now, there's something I noticed, and since I'm on, I'm on an effect size kick today, like how big is a lot? Um, Mookie Betts, who won the AL MVP, I believe had a war this year of 10.4. Somewhere in that range. Depends on how you, how, you, how you evaluate it. There's so many. One of the things that, that, that I object to about war is that it takes good, solid counting stats and it starts adjusting them. So you're no longer a counting stat. War is not a counting stat. So for our listeners, to be clear, a counting stat are home runs, RBIs, numbers of hits, something that is a measurable, actionable, actionable countable statistic on the field. The war takes those and then starts playing with them. And it plays with them substantially more. It is a more aggressively tailored than any other number in all of baseball. Yeah. So I, good for that. I'm good. good. So and as a result, wanna... you don't have just one war. You have a whole sort of wars. That, the one depending people... on who, who who uses them. So there's two essentially uh, two companies. Uh, there's Baseball Perspectives and Fangraphs, and they produce different values. And I think it's ten point one and ten point six, depending on which okay, one. Okay, but you it's get. in the ten range. It's, it's in the ten, 10 range. I yes. was going to ask you. Could you tell us? How big a number that is? So in Mike Trout's, no, no, I'm just saying. It's big. <laughs> okay, so I was just trying to get your it's sense. Big. Like, is just give our listeners, like, put this way, if I computed the percent, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions in sequence. Let's do one at a time. I wish I could. I'll try to answer them. No, on, no, I'll I answer them honestly, but no, I'll answer you know, them correctly if you know. <laughs> so, how big is that? If I took the highest WAR in any season by a player, which Mookie Betts was this year, he had the highest WAR in baseball. And I computed the distribution of the maximum wars. So let me just be clear to our listeners what I'm saying here. Let's say there's 100 seasons of baseball. Every year, I take the player with the maximum wars. Maybe some seasons it's 6, maybe some it's 8, maybe one it's 11, 12. Where would 10.4, 10.5, whatever the number is, where do you think? I know you may not know the exact number. Is it in the 90th percentile, 95th? Was this an all-time great season, even among the best seasons? Where do you think? Well, it's not an all-time best by any by any stretch. Babe Ruth did it almost every other year. He had over 10 war. Okay. I think he had 10 war like nine times in his career. All right. So uh, I think the highest wars were, were like Barry Bonds and Babe Ruth's terrific seasons where he had 13, 14 uh, uh, era kind of valuations. And remember, these are in shorter. Well, Babe Ruth is in a shorter season. It's 10% shorter. So you can you have to ha- add in another one or two more just to make him comparable. Um, but it's Thank definitely... You, it's, Babe Ruth was 14.1 in 1923. 1923. And I would guess that this is not a... a it's certainly not a 90 percentile, but it's definitely in the upper half, and it's probably pushing towards the upper quartile of the best in, in terms of if just take your distribution of the top in a given season. It, it, was, it, was, it was a remarkably good season. But you remember what War is doing is it's summarizing every aspect or attribute you, you can. And one of the things about Betts, getting back to our conversation about, about Beltre, is he was one of the best defenders this season. And he did it in a position, it wasn't center field, which is a really high value from the perspective of War, but he, he was playing out in right field, and, that's a, and he did it extremely well. And so he saved something like 
arguably 20 runs over the course of the season, Huge. which is about two wins. You know, and Babe Ruth contributed nothing in that oh, department. come on. Nothing. So if you compare head-to-head uh, offensive production, uh, you know, Babe Ruth makes By the way, mo- make bookie wets It's like amazing how you can look up these stats, thanks to, again, our producer Matt, yeah. that's Betts' season was 21st highest all-time for position players. 21st highest. Yeah. So, and it goes back to 1871. Now, I, I'm going to point out is that uh, this defensive stuff yeah, is it's extraordinarily I know, I know. arbitrary once you leave get before the stat cast era. Well, let me tell you, there, I think both of us agree there's no way he's, this is the 21st best offensive season. Oh, no, and not that, even that's close. That's not even close. And, that's right. And the other thing that they do is they, they try to make adjustments for the park, which actually hurts bets because um, Fenway Park is a, is, a, is a hitter's park. So, although doesn't affect every hitter the same way. They do knock you down for How that. How did you feel? Let's let's just shift. We'll stay within baseball for a second. And then I have two more points, and then we'll move on maybe to some other sports. How did you feel about Showtime, if you like, Shohei Otani winning, winning Rookie, rookie of, the of the Year as opposed to one of the Yankee players I mean, again, who actually played? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this is this is a season where the awards just, just really jumped all over statistics. Um, Trout didn't win, I don't think, I mean, and most people recognize that he did not have a good, as good a season as Mookie Betts, but he's always the candidate they'd like to bring every up year. Who, every year, right? You know, um, And that's, again, it's a stat-cast-driven or a war-driven statistic. Shohei Otani, again, is the same thing. I mean, Andre, you know, uh, uh, sorry, Andujar for the Yankees was a horrible defender. I mean, come on, we were at some of those playoff games. Anytime that ball rolled to third base, you would just grip your seat. You don't know what was going to happen in the field. And he was extra- every bit as good as Betts was. Andujar was negative, exactly in the opposite. And if you if you if you take that into consideration, you just have to walk away from Andujar. And yeah, Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani. I mean, he did have twenty, nearly twenty five home runs. Um, he had a remarkable season. At no, the it's play. a remarkable and, and, and a he, good pitching and he had season. A good pitching a good season. Pitching I mean, you season. can't you can't you can't knock it. I mean, this is a guy who contributed in both both offensively and defensively, and of course from uh, on the mound, remarkable. So. Well, let's also let's move. Let's stay within baseball just for our last few minutes here before the break. Then, actually, I got the idea for this question. Thanks again to Zach Drapkin for his notes that he provided us. Um, should manager of the year? Should we? Even, should we just get rid of that? Th- that is an award. Yeah, that you is know, an award. And and how would you? Let's. Uh, we've talked about this a number of times on Wharton Moneyball, but I, just I some man- thoughts. You know, how would you even measure? Manager of the year, like no, as a statistician, I, you're a statistician. Yeah. I want you to tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, professor of statistics Adi Weiner. So it's a hard question. It's a tough one because the manager affects the players on the field in a way that you you can't quite quantify. And I keep always go back to Billy Martin, and but those are different times. Billy Martin, every team he went to, whether it was the Tigers, the Yankees, the A's, the Rangers, every that team just turned around. And it, they often went from middle or last to competitive. And that happened every time he did it. And talk about enough opportunities and enough of a jump to recognize that it must have been him. But back then, the, the manager had on the field had much more control over the oh, roster. I'm pretty sure Billy Martin's not in the Hall of Fame. He's definitely not in the Hall of Fame as a player. We know that. Oh, no. I he mean, he was deserving. He was fine. He yeah. was fine as a player. But I'm pretty sure. I don't think he's in as a manager. 
I, I'm Mac and checking this. I'm pretty sure Billy you know, Martin you, is you not look in the at, Hall of Fame. You look at those lasts, or nearly last to first and nearly He's first. Not. Yeah. You look at you're looking for those dramatic turnarounds. So maybe the A's are interesting, but A's of course have you know Billy Bean, and he makes he calls the shots there. And is he the best? Is he the best general manager? Oh my, <laughs> that's not why, even close. <laughs> yeah. So why can't we just do this? Why would you be okay with the following? Just and you see the Braves. I think every now. So why do most people gravitate to the Braves? Well, their expected wins that's was right. let's call it seventy eight, seventy nine. They exceeded that. Why don't we just give the award for who exceeds the wins the most in a given it's year? Practically, what's done because you don't know how to attribute it. Yeah, and that's a, that's a big, big challenge. And, of course, you know, in the next hour, we'll be talking a lot about football. And let me tell you, there's no question coaching is going to be a big I part think, of that. We can talk about why it is in football. That's a, Why is coaching so much more important in football than it is in baseball? Well, we certainly, certainly have a lot to talk about. One other question I wanted to ask you before we take our break here. Um, do, you think the ML, do you think the Hall of Fame has the same cachet that it used to have or do you think in some sense the steroid era has kind of diminished that in some way in baseball yeah uh i don't think it has lost any cachet i think it's i think it's i still think it's the only hall of fame that people really deeply care about and are interested in in the way it's one of the things that's remarkable about baseball um i don't think getting into the football hall of fame has anything near the excitement although it's a lot harder to get into it is but it's not it doesn't have that it's 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 hard to track football player value the way we can do it in baseball. So maybe I'm thinking more as a statistician and an analyst. It, it just appeals to everything we love about sports. The you know, baseball hall of fame just speaks to it. Well, so. for someone that's been to all three hall of fames, and matter of fact, on the same trip, it was always a dream that I wanted. Um, the baseball hall of fame is the one that brings me to tears. So this has been the first hour of uh, Moneyball. Uh, we still have an hour to go. Uh, please join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, along with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Cade Massey, and Shane Jensen here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, we'd love to talk to you about the world of sports and statistics. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Adi, we've talked a lot about baseball. We've talked a fair amount about basketball. Let's transition now to the NFL, certainly a sport that's in full swing right now. There's lots of topics I want to get to about the NFL, but we have to talk about the Chiefs-Rams game that happened the other night. So I, I wasn't wanted to ask you a specific stat about that game and whether this is one of these concocted, made-up things where it's actually worth anything. So just so you know, um, the score, the final score was Rams fifty-four, Chiefs fifty-one. So <laughs> yes, do you know? Um, I was trying to look this up. Did the Rams cover? They were favored. The, they did not cover. They did not actually. They did cover. not. The spread was three and a half. Uh, was three, a lot of that was very complicated because no one really knew what to do with the home team, home field advantage there. Because well, they weren't playing in their stadium. I know, but it was... It, well, they played in L.A. They did the, play in they L.A., but they weren't LA. playing... Right, so where did they play? I think the game was played in the Rams. Yeah, it was, it was a home it was game. Played. It okay. was a home game. Okay. But the Rams, I know... I, I didn't bet on the game. A relative of mine bet on the game. It was The Rams did not cover. And I don't think the Rams... The Rams have basically not been covering all season. They went out right. But I wanted, but to, give you an, I wanted to give you another stat. I wanted to give you another stat. And then I have a lot of NFL stuff I want to talk about. But let's start with that. Um, is this meaningful at all? So, th- in the history of the NFL, you know, 
217 times, 217 times, a team has scored 50 points. So not a small number, 217 times. Up until that game, if you scored 50 points, you were 216-0. and So a team had never lost scoring 50 points until Monday night. That's right. Is that worth anything? Is that... Yeah. Okay, so tell us, like... I mean, first of all, first is different than, you know, high. I mean, it just is. There's often a gap between the largest and the second largest... Both teams winning fifty is really remarkable, and it does. I think it does does forebode a a new way of playing football. Well, in that's the NFL. what I was going to ask you. What does it tell us about just offensive, it, it's the offensive like, part of the game? It's looking like college. I mean, college with these big, wide open offenses have been thrown. I mean, there, a lot of innovation happens in college, and one of the reasons why it does happen is there's so many more, more teams, and much less is at stake in every game, and that does give you the opportunity to be more inventive. And I think what's happening is some of those innovations that have happened in the college are now finally making their way to the basically conservative NFL in the sense that they don't really adopt new ideas all that quickly. And you, and it does take a long time for the NFL to change, and I think you're seeing some of that. And, I mean, obviously... There's always an extreme. Extremes just happen. Records get broken. So the the converse is that but this is just su- that. But you would agree with me if you had to take well, I don't even want to call it an over under. Let's call it an over under. So let's imagine we're sitting here thirty years from now and we're gonna say there were two hundred and sixteen fifty point games played. I'm gonna go way over on the number of fifty point teams that scored fifty and lost. In other words, the new in the new NFL, we're not gonna wait another two hundred and sixteen games for another fifty exactly. point team to that's lose. The point. Perfect. That, that, that's that's the Perfect way I would. Set assessment. This this it, there was it, it it was never an opera. You never lost with fifty points before. Never and never and now I think you'll probably go probably but maybe 20 or 30 times out of every 50 times will you lose. I agree with that you. I don't, like even think, I don't even think it's going to be 200. Yeah. I think it could be 50. That's right. I yeah. don't think it's going to I think it's going to yeah. be much much less yeah. and it says something about the NFL. I want to say something else related to that game. And maybe it's about how you measure the quality of play. So on one measure, um Pat Mahomes, the essentially rookie, although it's a second year player. He he didn't really play much last year for the Kansas City Chiefs. I suppose I told you that he threw for well over 400 yards and six touchdowns. Is that a good game? Oh. <laughs> it's unbelievable, right? It's an unbelievable right? game. Okay. Six now, touchdowns. Six. Six touchdowns. Six. Think about that. Is that. I mean, what is the record number of touchdowns in an NFL game? I think it's seven. Seven? Okay. I think throwing for seven is, okay. the, is, the, is the number. But, let's, but I want to get to a different point. So you agree that's a great game, right? Yeah. Okay. Ridiculous. Suppose I told you now that he threw three interceptions... Suppose I also told you he fumbled the ball twice, one of which led directly to a touchdown for the other team, and the other one, one of the interceptions was a pick six, which led to a touchdown for the other team. So now he's got six touchdowns and five turnovers. Now we could decide whether the fumbles are his fault or not. Did he have a good game? Well, I think he had a good game, but it's certainly not an all-time game. So how do you think about, I mean... Could like obviously at some you, level you could compute uh, number of points created. But a lot's going on. I mean, remember you have to. I mean, there are things that happen at, at the time aspect of the game. What what the point score? How much? Which is left? And you do take chances towards the end. There was an interception at the very end that was clearly just you know an opportunity trying to make an actually opportunity there were two two interceptions two in the, the end, last but, couple. But the one that happened within twenty seconds yeah, to go yeah, was yeah. just like let's just let's try to win this game and boom. 
interception. Do you want to count that? I mean, that's the thing that's difficult about football is that they're not, every play is not created equal. You know, in baseball, every time at the bat, is essentially like every other, regardless of the situation. I mean, there obviously are some minor differences. But in football, there's enormous differences. There's garbage time, there's big leads, and basketball has that as well. And so I think it's, it's not, you can't just look say, at the counting stats so let me say and look why, at that and say, okay, uh, it's, it's not a good game. So no, let, six, six touchdowns, 400 yards is a good game. So let me say why I don't think he had a great game, and we agree with that. Yep. But it's not even about stats. Kansas City got the ball back down 54-51 mm-hmm. with... I don't know how much time was left. A minute, minute 20. Uh, I think it was less than that, but yeah. Let's say even 40 or 50 yeah, about, seconds I think left. it was about 40 or 50 seconds. 40 or 50 seconds. If it was a great game, he would have driven him down the field to, and to kick a field goal absolutely. to tie the game. Yeah. And that, to me, says why it wasn't particularly a great game. No, it wasn't a Brady-esque maneuver or Joe Montana with you know, sc- you know, scoring, getting you, yeah. you know, down the field in 15 seconds. So let me ask you another question. We obviously the betting line was great when it, it was three and a half. They won by three. The over under line, which was the highest ever, was sixty four. Right. The total was one hundred five. So I have two questions for you. One is how hard do you think it's becoming for the over under line to work? And secondly, I mean they were off by forty one points. The over-under line. What's interesting about being off by 41 points, which is well more than three standard deviations. Well, well more. So it's closer to four. And if you calculate standard deviations and use a normal distribution, that's that a one almost... in 10,000 event, approximately. Or maybe even less. But let's just argue it's a little less than four standard deviations. But now take into the fact that it had the highest over-under forecast already, which cool. means you'd expect it, to, sh- if anything, to shrink back down. This was a, a remarkable scoring game by I, any measure. Yeah, I just want to bring up for our listeners who heard Wart Moneyball this point that Adi just made. So let's imagine this was predicted to be an average scoring game, and you get a big exceedance of that. You'd say, well, yeah, that's really rare. This was the highest prediction and a four-standard four deviation. It's not quite four. I think the, the, Three and it's, a half, it's 12. Four. I think 12 is the, uh, is the standard deviation on, uh, I mean, on, a single, on the difference. So, by the way, the difference in the sum has the same standard deviation, roughly. <laughs> That's one of the things that people don't remember, um, that, uh, that they do at least if you treat them independently or if approximately they're independent. independently. If they're independent. Um, so, as a result... 42 is is three and a half standard deviations. I mean, that is an extraordinarily big gap, Can, and it was the largest sum. It, it was it, nobody could have predicted this. I mean, yeah, my view is I don't know when the next time we'll see. That's that's again. We, matter of fact, we should we'll have an entire show sometime about prediction of we'll call event times. I think this way we'll see. Let's do another quasi over under if you'd like. Which are we going to see first? A team fifty points scoring losing a game. Or a team exceeding the over-under, the, the sum of the scores, by three and a half. Which do you think we're going to see three first? Three and a half standard deviations. You think we'll see first? Oh, uh, I know, I know. So, so that's a tough one because uh, we've never I'm seen— I'm here asking tough questions. That's t- what so I'm let's just do, to let's do. do a, let's, do, let's do a quick calculation here. How okay. many games are there in a season? Well, every week there are roughly 15. 16 games. So 16, 16 games times, times 6 times 17. Let's say there's 300 games, roughly. So 300 games. So 270. 270, right. something like that. So in, if we go back, say, 50 years, approximately, modern football, 50 years times 270, you're looking 13, at 13,500 uh, uh, 13, games. And we've seen this. Is finally saw this once. 
So I would say that the over-under by 42 is, if you if the past is our only guide, the over-under by 42 is maybe slightly more likely. Might, will happen a little earlier than 50-50. But now if we make a, a non-stationarity and say that 50-50 is more, more common than we've ever seen before, then we're going to go with a 50-50. Uh, but they're roughly around the same what? size. So that's just really know, interesting. So I'm an effect size. Yeah. What I also like about this calculation is they're actually – these two events – are likely correlated with each other. They are. Now, let me say why I say <laughs> yeah, that. They are. Absolutely. Because if, well, let's go down the thinking path here. If there's non-stationarity and we're in the new NFL where 40, 50 points is not that rare, number one, both teams getting there may not be as rare as the past. First of all, that's a mandatory thing for the 50-point person to lose the game. Both teams have right. to score over 50. Absolutely. So that's number one. Number two, when the total sum is really high... Obviously, that's related to the over/under, and so I think what's interesting is I think we probably both happen agree. at the same time. <laughs> well, they may happen. That's a great point. They may happen at the same time. I think we both agree it's definitely shorter than the past. It's debatable which one of the two. Will I mean, happen the real first. question is: it can happen another way. I mean, you can have you can have an over/under of say forty which is a much more respectable and more average over-under, and then they beat it by 42. So in other words, if two teams go 48 and 40, to 48 to 42, that'll beat it. That could potentially easily beat it as well. And the real question is, can a team that's forecasted to score 25 points score 48? And I think that can happen. I think that can happen quite, quite reasonably. I mean, we saw, you see teams score high 40s fairly regularly. Yeah, the reason I think that the, um, the over-under is less likely to happen in the future is I think the betting markets will catch up, and I think the over-unders are going to creep up. Right. And even if they creep up four, five, six points, that's a big difference when it comes to number of standard deviations. Because now you might need a score of 110 right. to exceed some over-number line. And now all of a sudden, I mean, I, just, I think that's going to creep up. This other thing's not a statistic. I mean, it's just 50-point teams lost. Over-under goes up. It's but hard it, to exceed it. 42 is, uh, exceeding by 42 is remarkable. Each team scored three touchdowns more than predicted. Both did. Right, both That's did. Crazy. Right, right. But, well, but no, no, but you, it's another interesting, you're, you're full of interesting points oh, well, today. Thank Here's you, another Eric. interesting point. Here's another interesting point. For the total sum to be that high, it would have to be that way. Because let's imagine the Rams were up by 35 points, so they far exceed. Well, the game's essentially over, so they're going to stop scoring, and there's not going to be as much scoring. It, the fact is, it was a competitive game, so you actually need three things. Both teams have to be scoring a lot, making it competitive to make it an incentive for both teams to keep scoring as opposed to just running the football, shutting it down, right. playing conservative. Which is one other interesting fact of this game, which I read about, um, which is a rarity, and people don't recognize how rare this is, is the lead changed hands four times in the fourth quarter. And this is something that people don't realize. People think that close games uh, and, and usually, by definition, involve changes in the lead. And actually, that's not true. So you're saying with the one team just passes the other team right at the end, there's usually only usually, one change? There's usually one change or no changes. When there's a close game, it's highly likely that there's no changes, and it, the second most likely is one, and many changes are highly unlikely. This is a well-studied concept in, in mathematics called the arc-sign law, and when two teams are, or it, this comes from voting, or the same thing in yeah, sports. Yeah, tell us about uh, this. So basically, if you have a, a, an alternating, uh, each team has an opportunity to score, and then you try to, and then you calculate the difference between the two teams, and look at the distribution of that difference. The difference is very is, um, and you actually look at the number of lead changes. Typically, the way that we measure it is the percentage of the time that one team is ahead. Do you mean actually in terms of time of the game? Uh, well, usually, you, usually, of the usually, a fraction something. of possessions would be okay. the way. We are. 
fraction of the turns. Um, so if there's if there's a certain number of turns or possessions or depending on how you want to count in the sport, you can look at what is the fraction of time that one team is ahead. And there's a huge, huge bias towards very high percentages. So when a game is close, it still is likely that one team has been ahead almost the entire time. So that's interesting. Let me just be clear. That's a backward-looking thing. You're ta- what you just said is backward-looking. Backward of course, conditional on a team being ahead. If I look backwards, there it's not like they flipped around it's five very or six rare. times. Flips are very unusual, and the more flips, the more unusual. And most people don't realize that it, it typically happens that one team gets ahead and stays ahead, and one team is just nipping at them at the, the entire right. time and might switch at the end. But it's highly likely that if there is a switch. It's, it happens once or twice, and four times in the fourth quarter is really rare. That's a statistic I'd like to see how often that's happening. So I would imagine, though, that this uh, – what's interesting is I'm going to ask you a question, but we've had – you and I have had this discussion before. So you obviously were trained as a probabilist. Yes. And you've – obviously that's still a big passion of yours, but you've moved more, a lot towards applied statistics over the last few years. You agree this is something that would be straightforward to compute under simulation. It would be straightforward to do. And this is the question I always ask you, is the need, I mean, I'm sure this right. arc sign law, that there's a theory that relates beautiful to this. Theory, yes. it's a, I'm sure it's a beautiful theory. Do we need this theory anymore, or can this just be solved by massive simulation now? And in some sense, you would you'd find out that the theory works, but can you just, can, just give me a big cloud computer, I'll just simulate a bunch of within-game outcomes, and I'll just compute this fraction. Well, I mean, uh, truthfully, the simulations allow you to change the basic formulation very, very easily that make the mathematics essentially too complicated to actually solve. So, in fact, I mean, there are all kinds of problems which are which are essentially intractable mathematically if you make any deviation exactly. from the simplest assumptions, Good but point. become become but are just is equally effortless if you do it with simulation. And, and a lot like the arc sign is is similar. And I actually do have a, a, a somewhat recent mathematical paper. It's called. It has to do with Yule's nonsense correlation. And the observation is when you take two two essentially, well, we talk about them as Brownian, Brownian motions, but you can think of them as the paths of of scoring in a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game. And if you correlate two sequences of completely unrelated um, scores or score sequences, they actually have a a, a rather uh, diverse distribution of their correlation, and it's quite likely they can be correlated, highly correlated, even though they're completely independent. And the question is to calculate the distribution of that, of the correlation coefficient, which is almost uniform between zero and one. It's a really surprising result. It's due to Yule. He, he noticed that. And uh, we have a paper that tries to work out all the details mathematically. And it's, it's, what's comical about it yeah. is that while the details are immensely interesting from a mathematics perspective, we learn nothing. Right. Nothing that we didn't already know using a simulation. What's interesting about this, just to our listeners out here, I, I love the description that I want to just give. Just understand, we have two teams scoring points, and in this case, they're both, and this is partly why there may be a correlation uh, induced, is that they're both positive sequences, so the scores aren't numbers. They're always numbers greater than zero, and they're both increasing sequences if we look at the total number of points scored. And we look at the correlation between them, and in some sense, there's going to be 
the, the distribution of what that correlation looks like is actually a very interesting thing. Matter of fact, has huge implications for business, by the way, huge implications for businesses if people are trying to understand like what's driving, like let's imagine one's marketing spend and one's sales. And I'm looking at these two positive sequences going on. And I'm trying- They don't to- even have to be positive, by the way. And they still have a high chance of being correlated. Wow. So it's, re- and this is what, to making the business point, people look at two, at, at two sequences and they think of them as uh, correlated. They look at, they actually measure the correlation, and they try to infer meaning from that. And the point of, of Yule's nonsense correlation is that, that large correlations happen randomly all the time. I think that's one of the reasons why we need statistics. So let's go to the phones. We have Nate from Connecticut. Nate, how can we help you on Wharton Moneyball? This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Good morning, guys. Yeah, just wanted to see if you could look up what the number of standard, standard deviations were on the past Chiefs game earlier in the year. I know they both scored over 40, uh, so that might be close to the three and a half. Well, first of all, Nate, thank you for your call. And again, it's anybody, good, it's a good question. Anybody can call in here on Wharton Moneyball, just like Nate from Connecticut at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Thank you again, Nate. Um, so the score in that game was forty three to forty eighty three. The over under in that game was fifty eight and a half. So it exceeded it by a large number, but twenty four and a half, which is about two, two standard, standard deviations. deviations. And one thing about the normal distribution is it goes to zero. Fast and the difference exponentially between exponentially so two standard deviations is about a one in twenty shot being more than two standard deviations in either direction. All right, so that's about a, a one in twenty shot being more than one in three and a half standard deviations is close to one in ten thousand. And just also for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, they're less familiar with the standard deviation. Everybody's familiar with the mean, the average. The standard deviation literally is a measure of dispersion around the average. And so, if you know the classic rule of thumb in statistics is sixty. If you think of a bell curve, a normal curve, 68% of the data happens within plus or minus one standard deviation. Roughly 95% of the data happens within two. 99% of the data happens within three. So More like 99.9. 99.9 within three. I mean, one thing about normal distribution. Which makes a big difference. Because one's difference. one in a hundred, one's one in a thousand. So and and this, is, this is actually where the normal approximation starts to fail, is that people use it out in the extremes. And they, they think that three standard deviations are about one in a thousand. Three and a half standard deviations are more than like one in 10,000. But in the real world, extreme exceedances happen more frequently than by the normal distribution. So the normal distribution will fit very nicely the day-to-day behavior of lots of random events. But in the extremes, they, they, they can be a, a way of an underestimate. And then in football, if you think about it, maybe that's what's happening. Why also. is that? Is there, a, is there a theory behind why empirical, if you'd like, the uh, let me just say it there in is a, a semi-technical way for a second, that the thickness of the tail empirically is greater than the thickness of the tail implied by the normal. That's for right. those people that want to look, I'm drawing a bell curve, but that's a theoretical curve. It's a fit curve. And now I look at the actual distribution, and the right tail is actually heavier, what we call thicker, than the, the-, the normal would provide. What- what's the rationale for that? Okay, so there's two rationales. And by the way, what we're talking about is what Nissan Taleb has essentially made a living on, which is he calls them black swans, uh, when something that's supposed to be rare just happens, and they tend to happen more frequently than you, than you anticipate. Okay, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. I hope, by the way, I hope all our listeners are warned, buddy. I'm fascinated as to what the answer is to this question. So there, there, there are two answers that well, I can one say. One at a time. One of them is a highly statistical answer and has to do with why the normal distribution appears so frequently. And that has to do with 
a lot of things in life are this are this the Some accumulations of small contributions, and this is true in sports. It's true in many many areas, and so you take a bunch of things that some lots of small independent uh, contributions that leads to a normal distribution. And that's what we call the central limit theorem in statistics. But the foundation it's of the foundation, and what's remarkable about the central limit theorem is it doesn't take very many parts to be added up before you get a normal distribution in the thick part of the distribution. So it doesn't take it, it. You'll see the normal distribution in the thick part all over the place. Now, the tails to be normal, that has needs more and more data before that's true. I see. But the real it has to do it has to do with it has to do with shocks. So the normal distribution, the central limit theorem, uh, you can't have an underlying distribution that has big shocks. That then requ- that requires enormous amount of data. Before so let's the take central sports. Limit what would be an example just for our listeners here? What would be an example of a shock? that might create a create a situation where the sum of little pieces don't add up to something that's normal. Like, what would be a shock in sports that we might well, see? Well, first of all, the teams can take chances in the way that they don't, ah. and, and that already starts to increase an enormous amount of variability, which would mean that the essential limit theorem takes more time to kick in. So you don't really see too many big shocks like this in sports, and that's why a three and a half is a pretty good approximation. I mean, it really is a pretty darn good approximation to the to the point spread. Twelve standard deviation, uh, a twelve point standard deviation. And a mean of zero, of course, because the line is usually set with a mean zero. And, and a normal distribution is pretty darn good. What would be a shock? I mean, all these interceptions and all these fumbles. That could add a lot of variance. Well, let's talk about relatedly. So how much do you think? Let's imagine. I, uh, this is kind of an uh, unanswerable question, but not totally unanswerable. Let's imagine it's the Super Bowl. And let's imagine. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to build in the playoff factor. But let's imagine the Chiefs and the Rams played again today. What do you think the over-under Vegas line would be for that game? So what I'm asking Adi to do, let's be clear. We have the empirical line that was set before the game, which was 64, the highest ever. We had a game that was played that was 105. Now, what, Good how much would they adjust love the Vegas? The oh, thank you. I'm trying. I, I love it. I'm That's a great here. question. Because it, usually there's an overreaction. I mean, this is if I learned anything from, from Cade, and I've learned a lot, but one of the things that I really learned and I'm happy to learn is, is what he describes as the over, overreaction to recent events. And most modelers, most forecasters, Vegas, most pundits tend to overreact to recent events. And this is a well-known psychological f- phenomenon. We tend to remember most strongly what happened recently, and we don't understand the importance of randomness and that random stuff just right, happens. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to so, we're, we're so, play it. Before you give me your yeah. number, I'm going to elicit it from you in a betting game. But we're not really going to bet. But here we go. All right, so if the over-under were the highest ever, 65, higher than 64, would you take over-under right now? The game's played again. 65, are you yes, taking over-under? Yes, I, I, I would take an over. 70. I'm like, the price is right here. I'm going up from the bottom. I want to see where you're going to stop. 70. Would you take over 70? The game was 105, Adi. 105. I realize that. I am now starting to think about not taking it, but I probably would take the over on 70. Just at 70. Yep, but I'm not going much higher. Maybe 72. So I'm asking our producer, Matt Datz, to put on our Twitter feed, at WMoneyBall, if the over-under... For another hypothetical Rams game. Which Chiefs could be game. the Super Bowl. It could be, but the Super Bowl could lead to a different dynamic right. where the scoring is different in that game. But if another regular season game were played between the Rams and the Chiefs, I'm even going to say 75. Where would everybody put? Where Where do our I'm voters... I'm going under on 75, by the way. That's my line. 
Okay. And I'm sticking to it. All right. Well, you could say it's a prediction that you're, <laughs> well, and you're and the reason I'm why going I'm doing under it, as well. You're going, I'm going under. I don't, and again, I'm trying to take to simulate the things that I've learned over the years. And the thing that I've learned is that one game you shouldn't overreact to. And a 10-point move is nearly a standard deviation. That's a huge move. That's a huge move. <laughs> I, can't do, I can't justify a movement of that large. Can I justify even a half? That starts to get me to think. So 70 is probably where I would move to. So I want to talk a little bit more about the NFL. We have a couple more things I'd like to talk about. So is this going to be a replay of the past? And here's what I mean by that. So right now, if you look at the NFL, look at the betting odds, um, it turns out the Patriots are actually the fifth favored team right now, third favored in the AFC, third favored in the AFC. This is by Vegas or by by Massey Peabody? By, by... By Vegas. After the Chiefs and the Steelers, by the way, who both have better records. Let's be clear. If the NFL playoffs started today, the Patriots win their division. They're not the one or the two seed. No. Which means they have an extra playoff game to play. So it's pretty hard. Even as great as you might think the Patriots are, it's hard to favor them over a team that plays one less game than they do. It does. But I'm just going to ask you if this is going to be a replay. So with the the Chiefs losing, they're now 9-2. and They have two losses. Okay. The Steelers have two and a half losses, if you'd like. They have two losses and a tie. The Patriots have three losses. Of course, What's it always the schedule happens. going I'm, out? I'm going yeah. to tell you. So here's what I'll tell you. One fact. The Patriots and the Steelers play each other this year. <laughs> Remaining at the Steelers. Pats at Steelers. The Chiefs have home games. Le- they have games left. I think they're playing the Raiders twice. Let's assume they're going to beat the Raiders. The Raiders are one of the worst teams in the NFL. The Chiefs are home to the Ravens, home to the Chargers, and at Seahawks. So I'm just wondering, as someone that hates the Patriots, is this the classic, all right, look, they're going to beat the Steelers. So now the Steelers have three and a half losses. They have three. They win the tiebreaker. Somehow the Chiefs are going to lose one more game. The Patriots are going to go 13-3, and three, end up with the number one seed in the AFC. It's going to go through Foxborough. Patriots are back in the Super Bowl. That's my worst case scenario. But is that what's going to happen? Well, that's my prediction. And by the way, here are the Patriots you, remaining. Do you games. think that's the that's the most likely well, here scenario? Here it is, right here. Pats at Jets. Who do you like in that game? <laughs> okay, Vikings at Pat- Patriots. Who do you like in that game? <laughs> Sadly, I All have right. to like the Patriots. Right? Patriots at Dolphins. Patriots again. Right, Although I'll, they do I'll have some injuries, the so they, they aren't quite so. I know. So but I'll full skip strength. the Patriots Steelers game for a second. Bills at Patriots. Who do you like in that game? Still like the Patriots. How do you, Jets at Patriots? Who do you again. like in that game? Okay, so that's the remaining schedule, except for Pats at Steelers. So I said conditional on the Pats beating the Steelers. They don't really have a rough, other than the Steelers game. They're they don't thirteen have a rough, and three. Yeah, they're thirteen. If they and three. win that game, they're thirteen uh, and three. I, and I do think they're going to lose one. another one of those. And remember, they beat the Chiefs. Games. They beat the Chiefs. Yes. They so did. if they both end up thirteen and three, the, the Patriots get the one seed. So you're saying they're going to be the one seed. That means they skip the first game. They're home the whole way, and that, that their path to the Super Bowl is clear. I'm saying their path to the Super Bowl is clear. I'm just saying this that path. So that means here's, that who, here's, who are the Chiefs play on the? Let's say the Steelers and the Chiefs are both in the playoffs. What's the path to? Through the Super Bowl. Well, what 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 are the seeding? You want me to be the chief? Yeah, what, I mean, who's going to knock up? Let's say they are one. If the Patriots, let's say a scenario: Patriots are one. Let's say Chiefs are two. Steelers are three. Yeah. So first of all, if everything goes according to what's called chalk, meaning you know who wins the wild card, then one plays four. Right. So that means they're going to play the worst AFC division winner, which by the way may end up being the I guess it would be the Texans or somebody like that. I guess. 
Yeah, it would be Texans, Texans or Chargers. So they play at home against the Texan Charger. And then, of course, the they Chiefs and win. the Steelers have to play each other. Right. And the winner of that game would then play the Patriots if everything went according to... So I do I do understand your fear, and I do give it decent probability. I wouldn't say it's the, more, the most likely scenario. I mean, but it, is, no. it may be the single most likely scenario, but, but the, one of low the probability field still. has way more probability than that particular But how do sequence. you feel? how do you feel about the Patriots being the fifth favored team right now? And by the way, just to let you know, here are the Vegas odds. The Saints are at plus 250. By the way... Uh, to, I guess this is to win the Super Bowl, plus 250. The Rams are at plus 350. The Chiefs are at plus 500. Steelers plus 700. Patriots plus 750. Then what's interesting is it jumps to the Bears at plus 1,600, and then the Chargers at plus 2,500. So basically you have almost all of the mass on five teams. You feeling good about that? Uh, well, you know, five is, is it's not it's golf, by the way. <laughs> so the top five in golf don't, don't, don't get that much probability. In fact, the top five in golf probably get about 40% of the probability. And it's interesting that we're giving about 90% of the probability to the top five in, in, Super, in uh, football, this course halfway through. I think that's fairly, I mean, I think basketball probably would be uh, more extreme. Basketball we know is top extreme. Five is, top five yeah. is, uh, I don't call anything 100%. But yeah, but it's about We as, could as, name five NBA teams right and, uh, now and, and the I think champions prob- coming from that. Right, I think that baseball is probably the, the lowest of the top five. Um, so, yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think I, those top five, those five really have a, have a good solid lock on it, at least 90%, maybe 95%. Well, if you want to... An additional half hour of reasonable content. We're here on Morton Money before another half hour. Please stay with us and join us again after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, here along with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, for bringing us back with some exciting music for the last half hour of here on Wharton Moneyball. Some combination of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed throughout the week. And you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all kinds of other places. And, of course, just like Nate from Connecticut called, you too can call into Wharton Moneyball. Very easy to do. Just call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, which I hope all of you do, at W Moneyball. So, Adi, obviously we're going to do our Moneyball matchups a little bit later in the show. There's two event, two sports I want to talk about briefly just to get your assessment of what's going on. Now, one, which you don't follow as much as I do, but every, nobody follows it as much as I do, which is tennis. Something amazing happened in the year-end tennis championships this year. So, as we all know, there's the big four of tennis, right? Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, if you want, we'll include Andy Murray in there. Um, they've won something like, I'll make it up, 62 of the last 67 Grand Slam tournaments. So they at the end of the year in tennis, the eight top players, eight top players, are broken into two groups of four. They play round robin. The top two make the semifinals in each bracket, and then there's the finals. So this year, um, Federer was on one side. Djokovic was on the other, not surprisingly. They both advanced to their semifinals. In the first semifinal, uh, a German player, number four in the world, Alexander Zverev, beat Federer, went to the finals, beat Djokovic. Now, a couple things. This is only the fourth time in history that anybody has beaten two, if you count Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic as the big three, has beaten two of them in the same tournament. Zverev is 21 years old. 
He's, he's good, huh? He's a pretty good player. And Djokovic had had... Which an, tournament is this? What is this, this called? This is called the ATP Finals. Okay. This is actually... It's not a major, but it might as well be. The only people invited are the top eight, eight players, players based on ranking points throughout the season. I mean, it's a big deal to win this tournament. And Zverev beat Federer in the semis. Well, he's good. In he's straight sets, the by the eight, way. Right. He beat them both in straight sets. Yeah. Now, it's best of three, not best of five. Right. Are we starting to see... Federer won one major in 2018. Amazing for a 37-year-old, but it was the Australian in January. We have to be seeing it. Nobody defeats time. Okay. It beats all mountains down. All right. So if I, I, every mountain gets beaten down. (laughs) So if I had to ask you now, the 2019 season, Nadal was injured. He's still injured, but let's assume he comes back. Andy Murray's had the hip problem. Let's assume he comes back for the moment. Let's even put Warinka in there, maybe Del Potro in there. Mm Mm-hmm. Are we going to see somebody that's not the big three or four win one of the majors? Win one of the majors. Yes. You think so? This is the year. I think this is the year. Or do you think there's another possibility of a Djokovic slam again, where Djokovic, who had an amazing second half of the season winning Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, maybe he wins all four majors. How old is Djokovic? Where is he? He's 31. So he actually is still arguably... I mean, by modern standards, by modern he's standards, still closer to his prime. I mean, Connors, those guys uh, were Mac washed up were at done 30. By yeah, 31. Yeah. So by modern standards, Djokovic is still decently, uh, he's still decently long-lasting. I mean, he probably has about four, three, four more solid years. I mean, listen, these guys are, Federer is really, he's really at the end. 37 is, is ungodly old for a tennis player. Remarkable how he's done. But it's also he's done it by managing his career properly. Well, he's done it the last four or five years. He basically only barely plays pro- 10 barely tournaments, plays. barely yeah. plays tournaments. By the way, just to, again, and just, we're not doing formal over-unders today, but I, I always have to ask you. So, Federer has 20 majors. Nadal, 17. Djokovic, 14. Same as Sampras, by the way. Who ends up their career with more? Federer's 37, Nadal's 32, Djokovic's 31. 20 for Federer, 17 for Nadal, 14, 14 for Djokovic. Who do you like? Uh, Federer. You I like think, Federer? I, think he's gonna, you know, I don't think he's going to win. He may win one more, but I don't, think the, I don't think Djokovic will catch him. And do you think, you don't think Nadal, despite his being injured, you know, he's won, I don't make the number, it's not making it up. He's, he's won, won so 10 many. of the 11 yeah, French. Yeah, so he probably can win another. He can Four probably pick five? up and, Yeah. So that's a good question. Will he uh, win? How old is he, though? He's 32. He's, oh, Nadal's only 32. He is. So he kind of has that, that that kind of spikiness in that in that French, which is so... And, and here's maybe a way to think about it. We all agree father time is undefeated. But here's an argument. His dominance on clay is so great yeah. that even Father Time makes him just the greatest on clay, not the can, greatest can of all win, time. Can he win four or five more on clay alone to, to, to uh, catapult that's the question. over Federer? And that's a good point, and that actually makes me rethink the, the, uh, the calculation. I think Nadal probably has the best shot of passing Federer. You're saying even more than Djokovic, because winning six more is like... Yes, the others are much more contested. He's got to win seven more to pass him. And and Nadal is just what does he want? Eleven out of the last twelve or ten of eleven? Ten, ten of the last eleven. The really question: Will he win the next three or the next out of the next four? Um, I don't think Nadal has has it in him to win maybe more than one outside of the French. So the real question I is: I agree what, with you there. So so how many more Frenches will he win? Will he win four? If he's or, healthy, you and I both agree. Yeah, he could win he four wins, more. He could win uh, more. Yeah. And I don't think Federer has more than one in him either. Of any. I don't think so, so either. We're, we're looking at, a, at an ending of 21 for Federer. 
And Djokovic has the longest career I left, but I just don't. All, so then all Djokovic has to do is, this all is, he win, has to do. is win eight more. Eight uh, more. Forget just it. Just eight more. Yeah, and he can't win the French. He doesn't have a, a lock on. He's not going to win any of the French. Well, he if Nadal doesn't play the French, all of a sudden Djokovic is the favorite at the French. All right, so I'm I'm ranking it now. I think I think Nadal um, and Federer are almost toss-ups for, for, for the career total, and I think Djokovic is third. And I, I would agree with that, but I would say if one of these younger players, whether it's Zverev, Dimitrov, one of these young Shows guys... Shows any talent and clay. Then, that, then why can't Djokovic play till 35, 36 and just scoop up two a year for the next five years? I think he can. Well... Two a year for the next five years? No. No, 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 no. No way. No, not happening. Now, you can ask Djokovic only has 14 because he's been head-to-head with these these greats, and, and you take them off the table, and, and it's a different story. Um, but where are the, young, well, the youngsters? The and and, and that's the you question. began the conversation by talking about this new star. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, I, anyway, Which is great to see. No I, Americans, though. Never Americans. The top, so one American made the final eight, John Isner. John Isner, right. You know, but John Isner, I think, is, is either 33 or 34, and he's the number one Where ranked the American. We have a bunch. There are a bunch of American players that are in the 20 to – we have a huge number of American players now between 20 and 50 ranked in the mm-hmm. world. So to say that Americans aren't represented in the top 50 is really false. But in the top 20 – not as many. Not as many. Not, not as yeah. many at remarkable, all. Actually. It's remarkable. So let's flip to another sport before we get to football, uh, back to football. We didn't talk about college football, actually. We're going to get to college okay. football. Let's talk about golf for a minute here. Now, you might say, well, golf. this is the off season. What the hell is going on in golf? Well, I'm sure you know this. I think you know this. Um, Friday, there's a very interesting golf I, I event. I read about it. What is this event? This is the Tiger Woods versus the Phil, Phil Mich- Mickelson. Why? What is, it, what is the nature of this All right, so matchup? It's a head-to-head matchup. It's match play, which means, let's be clear, you win the hole, you get a point, right. you lose, lose the hole. I mean, it's not stroke play. It's right. not total score. It's, total. it's just, it's match play that the Ryder Cup has played, but that's what they want. They want them to go aggressive. So this is a made-for-TV event, well, made-for-pay-per-view event. <laughs> you, could, you two can pay nineteen ninety nine if you want to watch this. It's $9 million, winner-take-all is the event. Winner take all, nothing for the loser. Nothing for the loser. $9 million. Now, it's not their own money, obviously. It's being put up by sponsors, although they already have a $200,000 side bet on the first hole. Uh, Mickelson has said he can birdie the first hole, and Woods has bet him $200,000. Just privately, they've done this. Well, they did it in public. They announced the public. public. uh, That's their own money. This is their own money. $200,000 on the first hole that Mickelson's going to birdie the first hole. So, <laughs> so Mickelson is making a two, and it has nothing to do with Tiger Woods' performance. It essentially is what he's, he's going to do. Going to do he's, now, what is? The, oh, wow! So he believes he has a f- better than fifty percent chance. He does, but of course, the birdie rate in, in pros is somewhere around twenty five percent. So this yeah. is crazy. Why would he do this? It's a terrible bet for uh, Mickelson because this is a made-for-TV funny money event. I mean, it's real money, but I yeah. mean, two hundred thousand well, dollars to him obviously doesn't mean that's very about, much. Uh, I guess doesn't, twenty bucks to you. Yeah, and me. I guess doesn't very doesn't mean very much to him. But I wanted to ask you. The, the reason I brought this up relating to age as well is, you know, Mickelson, I think, is 48 or 49. Tiger Woods, I know, is born 1975. So Tiger Woods is 42, turning 43 at the end of this year. Is this meaningful? Like, is there anything that could be taken out of this? Do the world rankings mean anything? As you remember, Tiger Woods was one shot away from ending up the world, ending up number one. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Coming into the last hole of the last tournament, um, 
I forget the guy's name from England. Did he England. play very badly? Got, in the, no, in no, the... no. Tiger Woods won the last tournament. No, no. Okay, yeah, he did. He, he yes, won the last right. tournament. Um, I just can't. I apologize. I can't remember the guy's name from England. I can picture him. Hit a, it was a par five. He hit a shot directly into the bunker. He needed to get up and down, or Tiger Woods would have been the number one mm-hmm. player in the world. Anything meaningful in this match whatsoever? No, nothing meaningful. But I, I mean, I think Tiger Woods is probably the better player at this point. I mean. Isn't that the forecast? What's, what does Vegas say and who's going to win this? Yeah, so the Vegas odds has Tiger Woods winning the match. And yeah. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of like a two-to-one favorite. He's probably right. I don't see I, anything can happen, though. These are these match play is weird, right? It's not stroke play. And I think I think that's what makes Tiger Woods exceptional. It's all, I mean, you, you, you summarize. Tiger Woods is minus 200, so he's a two-to-one favorite. Okay, so two-to-one. So basically, you, you, you think about, I always think about Tiger Woods as, as being the complete golfer. There's, there's no one aspect of his game that really dominates. If you look at the expected point strokes gained, um, he doesn't. He, he's not the best driver. He's not the best putter. I mean, he may, may he have may been, have one, been at one yeah, point, one plane, but he's anymore. But when he competed for number one, and he's now nearly the number one player in the world again. Well, it's one thing. It's, his iron play. Yeah, he he hits the ball. You, I, I said this that many times. Them. He doesn't have any know, weakness, but right. he doesn't have a weakness. His scrambling, meaning if he's in a bunker, he's in the rough, right. is the best, and. He literally was the number one player in professional golf in the PGA on distance from the hole. I don't care if another guy's a better putter. If you have a 10-foot putt and I have a 5-foot putt, or I have a 10-foot putt and you have an 18-foot putt, I'm taking the guy with the 10-foot putt every single time. He gets closer to the pin. Either way, for those listeners out there, uh, I'm making a prediction. I think Tiger Woods is going to win this match. There's no way Tiger Woods is going to live for the rest of his life and let Phil Mickelson, who, you know, they're friendly now, but they weren't friendly. They never spoke for years and years and years. There's no way Tiger Woods is going to let him win that match. And trust me, it's all game face for Tiger on that day. Okay, I, I, that's who I'm all going right, with. I, I, and that's who I'm. That's too who bad I'm, I'm going not going to watch it, but I'll read all about it. <laughs> there the next we day. go. There we go. <laughs> let's talk briefly before we get to the NFL. Let's talk about college football because there's some massive games this weekend. The rivalry games. This is Michigan Ohio this week. Ohio State. Michigan Ohio State. Ohio State. Yep. State this this week. is a biggie. This is the biggie because if Michigan loses this, um, they're well, then prop- all hell all, all hell break. breaks loose with with Ohio State and with the teams down the line. Um, well, let's be clear. The winner of this game goes to the Big Ten championship game. That's right. Against, I believe, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, I think, has clinched the uh, the Big East, the other division of mm-hmm. the, uh, the Big Ten. Sorry, the Big Ten other division. Oh, Northwestern. Sorry. Oddly I, sorry. enough, Northwestern. I uh, didn't give my props to Northwestern there. You're right. I remember reading that Northwestern won, uh, is, is there. So let's be clear. The Michigan-Ohio State winner is beating Northwestern in the yes. Big Ten championship game. So now here comes the question. Let's say Michigan loses. Well, they're clearly going to drop out. They're, they're out. They're done for the playoffs. Ohio State wins. They beat them. They go on and beat Northwestern. You have a one-loss Ohio State team. Now, my doomsday scenario, which I was praying for, unfortunately didn't happen. I don't know if you know this. Ohio State won last week against Maryland. Barely. 52-51. to 51. Maryland's right. guy misses. Maryland goes for two in overtime. Goes scores the touchdown, doesn't kick the extra point to send it to a second overtime. Right, which was a mistake. Uh, I think that probabilistically was a mistake. Probabilistically, it's a mistake. They went for it, and they didn't make it, and Maryland Maryland loses. Now, does a one-loss Ohio State team replace Michigan in the playoffs? Or do you put in a one-loss Oklahoma? Or, you know, I'm going to say, of course, number 9 UCF. 
No, no, you, no, not UCF. No, I'm still going to. No, you I'm can't still go- do that. They have such a terrible schedule. It is, they don't play anybody good. Well, they just played Cincinnati, who was ranked number 24, I think, at the time, routed them in the game. Um, they've probably had two meaningful games this year. The other it's eight just games not are not enough. I mean, I, I am not an expert, but if I again rely on Cade for anything. Yeah, UCF is no good. He gives no probability of them being in this. All right, well, I'm going to tell you something right now. Um, last year, remember, I'm going to repeat this again UCF played Auburn. In the bowl game That's last right, year, they did defeat. They them. beat Auburn. Auburn was the only team to beat Alabama last year. Mm-hmm. UCF is going to be in the fi- assuming they win out, which they will. They're going to be in this what's called the New Year's Day Six. They're going to be in one of the big bowl games. Right now, they haven't played LSU. I think they're going to end up playing Ohio State. If UCS, UCF beats Ohio State, or maybe let's say Ohio State or Michigan, whoever loses this game, are you then going to tell me? Are you going to change your words? If UCF beats, let's call it the Michigan Ohio State loser. Not in the national champion. I'm going to tell you that they're not. They're not a national champion. Absolutely. I didn't ask that question. I'm going to say if UCF now for the second straight year beats, let's call it a five to eight team in the country, are you going to say that they should have gotten their shot in the final four? That's all I'm asking. I'm asking you, not asking you are they the national champion? Did they declare? Yeah, as you I mean, know, they declared a national championship last year. Yeah, as you they know. Can, yeah, sure they did. Um, my my issue is that is that basically this lack of information and 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 what you're trying to do is I've got very little information to no information on how good they are because they don't play anybody that's any good. So the question is now: give them one game. Well, actually, against well here's the one thing. I know transitivity doesn't work. Eight. Transitivity doesn't work. But yeah. here's here's the argument they've given. I think it was Pittsburgh that they played. They beat by 30 points or something. I think Pittsburgh played Notre Dame, I think, and Notre Dame beat Pittsburgh by seven in a very close and contested game. Well, Pittsburgh is a a team, I believe, that started off slowly and has come on much, much. I know, but I'm just asking you. So they beat Pittsburgh? They beat them by 30. Yeah. 45 to 14, Mm -hmm. they beat Pittsburgh. Notre Dame beat Pittsburgh, I think it was like 24-17 or something score in that range. So I understand I'm reaching now. I'm talking about a network graph, if you'd like, with right, two-node yeah, well, connection. If I beat you and you beat this, but I beat you by 30 and you only beat him. But is that worth anything? Well, I, I mean, this is where the, the our statistical experts probably have to weigh in. I mean, I generally generally don't believe – the truth is, is that they just don't have enough games against – I mean, Pittsburgh's okay. not even a top 25 team. All right, but so, Pittsburgh beat them 40 uh, – sorry, UCF beat Pittsburgh 45-14. Notre Dame beat Pittsburgh nineteen to fourteen, and the game was at Notre Dame. That's not worth anything or, to you. Yeah, well, it's not. Not that it's not. It doesn't worth. It just isn't it worth that much. I don't know. I mean, right. so basically, if they beat Michigan or Ohio, now we're talking about something that's interesting. But that'll obviously only be not. That wouldn't be in the playoffs, right? Um, the other interesting game this week. It's a huge rivalry game and a huge game for a team that could actually make the playoffs is Washington, Washington State. Right, right, right. Now, Washington State has only one loss. If they win that game, let's assume that, and then they go on and win the Pac-12 championship game, do you keep a one-loss Washington State team out of the playoffs? And I think the answer is yes. Well, it depends on what happens. I mean, if Michigan wins out, and Notre Dame wins, Notre Dame wins out, and then Clemson and, Clemson and, Alabama, and Alabama, we're well, done. There's, no, there's discussion. no discussion. So really, somebody has to fall. So I think Michigan is 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 a potential to fall to Iowa State to Ohio State, and I think honestly, here's a, here's the. I think Georgia has potentially the best shot of knocking off Alabama in this. And well, if, then I, all hell then breaks hell, loose. I think Alabama will stay in it. And this is where things will fall apart. But the thing that both fall of them, is one of those two, Michigan and Notre Dame, is going to get dumped. 
If, if Georgia beats Alabama. Well, let's play out a scenario. Georgia beats Alabama. Georgia okay. and Alabama stay. Clemson stays. And- Clemson stays. Okay, but let's talk about other teams. So Michigan would have one loss, the Big Ten champion. We could have Oklahoma, I believe, has only one loss, the Big 12 champion. We'd have Washington State with one loss, the Pac-12 champion, UCF. With no, I, I just to so who, okay, you. So let me ask you the question. Let's say Georgia does knock off Alabama, Cle- and Clemson, Notre Dame, and Michigan all win out. Now what do you do? If George, anybody that knocks off Alabama has to be in the playoffs. So then you got Georgia and Alabama and Clemson. So and Notre Dame. Three, if Notre Dame goes undefeated, Notre so then Dame's Michigan's in. gone. Yeah. By the way, just I mean, just so everybody knows, Notre Dame beat Michigan. So I yes. mean, I understand it was early in the season. It was a very close, contested game, but they did win. Either way, let's now move on to the NFL and our Moneyball matchups. Moneyball matchups. I always let this music play for a little bit. Now, Adi, uh, this is one of those weeks where we don't even have to wait till Sunday for football. As we know, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving night, Day yeah. is Thanksgiving, not night. Thanksgiving Day, there's three games on. There's a one o'clock. Three games. I thought it used to every, be. Historically, it was just one game. Didn't no. just the Lions play on Thanksgiving? They do, and they are playing at home against the Bears. But no, there's always been two games on Thanksgiving, and they added a third one. But this has been a long time, Adi. you got to start watching football more. They've been three I'm always, games. I'm, I'm always you know, going for a long after-dinner walk. On Thanksgiving, and I'm maybe missing. All right, well, those watch games. it on your mobile device. But either way, <laughs> there are three games on Thanksgiving Day: Bears at Lions, Redskins at Cowboys, and Falcons at Saints. Those are three games. They're all good games, but actually. They're, they're not bad. So, who do you have? Any of the games this week caught your eye? Well, okay. So among those three, I mean, I'm really interested, obviously, in, in watching that last game. Falcon Saints. Um, yeah, just because this is, I mean, the, all the, the hubbub. Saints minus 13. Saints are minus 13, but just the opportunity to watch Drew Brees seems, and this remarkable team seems interesting by itself. So that's a game that you're really interested in. Any prediction, both in the game outcome, it'd be hard to take the... Well, I'm certainly gonna, not going to take... At home, you're going to take the Saints. Cover gonna, the spread. Saints going to win by two touchdowns? I think yes. You think they are? I think Atlanta has lost its luster. I think uh, I think the I'm pretty sure they have a four and six record. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure that means some uh, loss. Yeah, I mean, luster I'm there. really interested in this week to see what's going on in our own division here with the Eagles, who looked horrifying, um, and you have to almost write them off. But there's still a very tight, tight division. Yeah. So here's the thing. I'm pretty sure I haven't checked all the permutations, but I'm pretty sure the Eagles control their own destiny. And here's what I mean by that: they, um, they're two games back of the uh, Redskins, but they play the Redskins twice. So they win those two games. They're at least tied with them, and they win the tiebreaker. They ha- they're, they're a game back of the Cowboys, but they play the Cowboys once more. Now, the Cowboys already beat the Eagles, so I don't know who's got the better division record. But let's assume the Eagles would because they would have beaten. Right. They would have be- Now, well, what do you make of the loss last week? How was that updating your, your probabilities on the Eagles? Oh, no, the Eagles were awful. Right. So They were awful. So were they awful? Will they be awful in the future, or was this a one-off awfulness? They've lost. They lost probably. They lost a couple of really close games. Really close games. Here's the other thing: the Giants haven't looked awful the last two games. They've won them. Yes, they and have. so now all of a sudden the Giants are three and seven. I like that's the game I like this week to look at. I like the Eagles. I like the yeah. Eagles finally to right the ship in this game. I think that's why wins now, do you losses. Think that- Wins, losses don't mean that much. No. But I will say the following. The Giants have beaten, I know they beat, I think, I know who they've beaten. 
They beat the 49ers and the Buccaneers. Let's not put them into the Super Bowl by beating the 49ers <laughs> and the Buccaneers. But that's the game that has caught my eye. Okay. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball this morning. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics. I'd like to thank my co-host and friend this morning, uh, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics here at the Wharton School. I want to thank our producer, Matt Datz, putting all kinds of great information up on my screen. Of course, thank our produce, uh, associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Um, this has been a great two hours. Some combination of myself, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning, holiday or not, uh, every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. live. So between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.